This is CS Book Club, and we're reading Chapter 4 of Understanding Computation, Just Add Power. I'm Justin Campbell, and with me is Amy Unger. Hey! Ashton Harris. Hey, guys. And Brian Cobb. Hello. So this chapter kind of starts off where Chapter 3 left off with regular expressions. It was kind of... <laughs> it was kind of interesting to see the limitations of regular expressions, or how... Uh, a DFA would handle them. Uh, I didn't. I wasn't really aware of how different the regular expressions I work with every day are from the DFAs that we wrote last time. Yeah, it they, they mentioned me. that there's a lot of like extensions to regular ex- expressions that turn them into what we use on a day-to-day basis. Absolutely. I mean, it seemed a lot to me that the basic premise of this chapter was, you know, taking um, our finite automatons and being able to give them any length now because you don't need a specific number of states um, and giving it the ability to take any length of characters and be able to parse it or do what you need to do with it. Yeah, this was really the chapter where I felt like we started to see uh, some of the utility in what we're designing. It's the humble stack that uh, really drives it. Before I started, I was like, I don't understand what push down means. And then I envisioned like pushing down into the stack and then it made sense. You know, I didn't make that connection until right now, but that does make sense. I could just be making a leap, a mental leap there. but <laughs> It's like the no. plates at the end of the buffet. <laughs> <laughs> and then they get hot. So, yeah, I mean, I thought it was really interesting to start off looking at the... Um, matching curly braces and the idea of uh, HTML as, you know, what they say is keeping track of an arbitrary amount of information. I guess I didn't really make the mental leap before I read that, um, but the difference between, you know, our arbitrary length of strings with A and B being entered and, you know, the idea of of matching um, in a a link in a string, you know, so it was really, it was kind of interesting to see what requires us to keep track of an arbitrary amount of information and what doesn't necessarily need that. Yeah. They start off introducing the the stack as a scratch space, which I thought was a cool way of thinking about it. Yeah. I have that circled and then great analogy written next to it. (laughs) And they call it external memory, which I found interesting, I guess, because it's external to the actual computation and having put like taking place. Actually, now that you mentioned that, it wasn't, it's not quite clear what the difference is between external and internal memory. Because it seems very, um, the, the, the PDAs, uh, seem very dependent upon the stack, so it seems like core to its power. Maybe the stack could be replaced by something else. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're only using the stack for a, you know, a PDA or a DPDA as a counter. So there's nothing really more to it. I'm sure there would probably be other ways to handle just counting to make sure that, you know, whatever is on top of your stack is what you would expect. Yeah, I think another part of the difference between internal and external memory is just what you have access to. The external memory, you have limited access, the, uh, Stack we implemented, um, you know, has push pop and the ability to look at the the first member, uh, but nothing else. Versus, 
at any point in the execution, our um, PDAs have the ability to know everything about their current state, right? So I kind of thought of it as external memory, something that's not, you don't have complete knowledge of. So you would call external memory anything in our stack array that wasn't accessible via top? Yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd say external memory is any device where there is essentially an, a cost to accessing it. You know, like you have to expend energy to and time for our um, PDA to be able to, to read every one of the things. And then when we move on to the next, to the Turing computers, um, you know, you're you're literally writing to tape. So anything that you have incomplete access to, um, I would consider external. I didn't know we were doing Turing machines next. I'm really excited now. Yeah. And after that, we get to do Lambda Calculus, so... Yes. Yeah. my favorite. So yeah, how did everybody like writing a very simple stack? It's a neat little implementation. And functional. Yeah. Yeah, one one thing that I found interesting was the fact that like we, we wrote top, but as we get into implementing the, the PDA, the fact that you have to actually destroy, like take the top off of the stack to actually look at it. Yeah, that really threw me. Um, because I kept on... I, I, I didn't quite get why... Uh, I don't know. There, there was definitely an oddity there. But yeah, back to the stack implementation. Um, the way that it's implemented is... is They call it functional, but I would call it uh, immutable, where if you push or pop, you actually return a new stack. You don't change the stack in place, which I thought was a nice constraint to have. It makes it a little bit easier to work with on the command line. I mean, you can just kind of execute any one of these lines and the original stack is still there. You don't have to, you know, like push stuff back onto the stack if you've popped everything off. So it's a little bit, I mean, because it's immutable, it's just kind of safer to play around with. I just thought writing stack.pop.pop.top was funny. <laughs> Hop on pop.top. <laughs> so then we started creating the rules. Yeah, it was a little bit like deja vu, you know? It's the same kind of terminology from last chapter, um, just with scratch space. Yeah, it was kind of the same thing as far as the how the rules are structured, just that you have this new... The, the new... Um, the input of what you're popping from from the stack, um, right? I, I thought it was interesting how, how, how you had to represent those as like if you didn't want to pop anything from the stack, but you wanted to make a decision based on what was on the stack. You had to explicitly push that back onto the stack when you were done. Right, it's like cleaning up after yourself. Yeah, I found the uh, his definition of the configuration really helpful for the way I was just thinking about everything that was happening, uh, which the configuration is what he calls two important things, what its current state is and what the current contents of the stack are, and just being able to think about a configuration as that's how you're moving from one state into the next as a configuration, not both concept as once was a, a little helpful for me to think about. Yeah, I definitely thought that was uh, kind of an interesting way to think about it. And that actually is kind of what got me thinking 
you know, as we got closer to the end of the chapter, I was kind of assuming we'd have that equivalence that we saw in the last chapter. And so that was kind of interesting to think about later on, where, you know, for this chapter, you are thinking about configuration as one thing. Um, but then at the end of the chapter, you start thinking about it, and you find that configuration becomes difficult to represent. The configuration, like the start state and the current state of the machine? Um, the... The current uh, state and the contents and of the stack. And the contents of the stack, right? So you can represent the current configuration um, as an individual object, right? So it's both the state and the stack. But then a DPDA cannot successfully read the entire contents of the stack, I think, and therefore cannot make an NPDA into a DPDA. Um, but yeah, I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about that more later. I just, I just found that, you know, talking about configuration as an individual concept really got me thinking along the lines of the last chapter where we were able to do that equivalence and make a, um, NFA into a DFA. Mm -hmm. And yeah, they do go into that more in the non-deterministic pushdown automata, um, which maybe makes a good segue. Yeah, I think uh, the only thing we haven't really talked about is the the concept, the new concept of stuck, and the ability for us to kind of represent every unknown um, or undefined state or configuration. Sorry. In the sense that it's not really practical to do so. I mean, you just kind of have to be careful. Yeah. And not um, get yourself into a bad situation. Yeah. Well, and then we see that we're actually, we're using stuck as a concept, but it is to to help us towards solutions. But I think it is an interesting right. thing to have because, you know, I remember last chapter thinking about those, those um, strings of A and B and, I, you know, I have a nice uh, keyboard. I don't know about you guys, but uh, most of the, the keys work here, you know. Some are a little sticky, a little bit too much soda here and there. But, uh, you know, I kept on wondering, what happens when I press C? I really want to press C. Or what happens when I press capital A, right? Um, and so it is kind of funny to see how, um, you know, it, for the DFAs, there is that rule that uh, you must have a, have a state for, or a rule for every possible input character. Um, but for these, they're willing to relax a little bit more just because there are so many options and just say, well, anything else, just, you get stuck. <laughs> it's not a bad thing. It just happens. Yeah. I mean, users are always going to do silly things, right? I mean, I'm a wonderful test user of my own applications. I'm happy to throw in unexpected characters. It's a feature. Yeah. So how about some non-determinism? So I thought this was interesting. Um, I mean, you gave the example earlier of, uh, you know, parsing HTML and using those tags or, you know, even parsing uh, JavaScript or something like that and using brackets um, as your kind of regex string was interesting to me because I never really thought of code as a palindrome before. 
um, which obviously for most cases it should be. I mean, every opening bracket should have a closing bracket, everything like that. So it was just a different concept for me to think about him as palindromes and the way he steps through it all I thought was pretty interesting. In the unit chapter, I found interesting like the, the syntax of like moving from state to state. I guess it's introduced earlier, but this is the first time I actually had to really parse it. Something that I found kind of helpful in this chapter was um, like the motivation for non-determinism is to kind of remove indicators, like explicit indicators in the input string. So like in this case, they talk about how um, with a deterministic pushdown automata, you need like a signifier at the midpoint of a string to even to even know like when to start thinking about whether or not a string is a palindrome. But if it's non-deterministic, you don't need that. Um, you know, you can you just read the string, and there's and as I mean in, in this case it has to be an, a string of even length, but you can extend it to be of of even or odd, and it doesn't need any sort of signifier to know when you're halfway through. Yeah, it's definitely interesting to see how complicated a lot of things that we take for granted actually are you know like just the ability to look at a string and find the middle point visually right and then in our code um i can't imagine any of us would have trouble determining whether something is a palindrome uh in our preferred language so it definitely was interesting to see that the lack of an indicator is the stumbling point here right but non-determinism, I mean, structurally isn't too different from, a, or rather a non-deterministic pushdown automata isn't too different structurally from a deterministic pushdown. Um, like, it just has a different rule book. And I think everything else, except for the kind of uh, aggregate class that builds up the whole thing, is the same. I mean, there's a lot of code reuse. And yet, surprisingly, you can't convert one into the other the way we did, you know, with a NFA and a DFA. You can't do the same sort of algorithm for an NPDA and a DPDA. Yeah. That's kind of what you were touching on earlier, Amy, right? Yeah. Um, definitely. By the point that we were through the NPDAs and, you know, we're keeping track of... Um, the set of possible configurations, you know, I think it's pretty easy to start thinking, all right, well, um, this will be uh, equivalent. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think it, it was interesting to start thinking about um, what it would be, what would be necessary um, uh, to make it uh, a DPDA. Um, and I guess I, I wasn't quite a hundred percent clear about what the blocking um problem was um and and how accessing uh the entire stack like uh, yeah i guess you know the sentence on um 125 is a little confusing or that paragraph where um they're talking about there's no way to combine all the possible stacks into a single stack so that a dpda can still see all the topmost characters and access every possible stack individually. Um, I guess I kind of get that, but I wasn't quite sure uh, how that was going to work. Yeah, now, now I'm reading, rereading that section. As am I. 
And, uh, yeah, I, hmm. It felt like it made sense at the time, but now I'm not so sure. Yeah, so I an, know. I felt the same way. So an NPDA has to know all the characters that could currently be on top of the stack, um, which a DPDA apparently can't, it, well, it, it doesn't do. Um, it, it has to be deterministic. It has to know what character is on top of the stack. Um, so is the problem that there are, like, in the, in, in the, deterministic and non-deterministic automata, like the, without pushdown, um, we had like this idea of, what was it? It was like we had several different sets of next states. Is that right to say? But there wasn't, there wasn't anything, like those were like scalar values in a way, because it was just, you know, this list of possible, uh, next moves. But with this, it's like not only do you have the top of the stack, but then you have like all the stuff in the stacks. Is that is that the sticking point? Yeah, I guess I kind of thought the way a DPDA would work would be that instead of pushing and popping characters, we would push and pop configurations. Hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess uh, now that I think about it, that doesn't really make sense now, does it? Right. Well, because the configuration is the what the rules and the yeah get my yeah, nomenclature mixed up here. The state and the stack. Yeah. Hmm. Well, yeah. I mean, this. Yeah, I'd, I'd definitely like to think about this some more. I mean, I, I I also thought it was interesting, and maybe I'm jumping ahead just a little bit, but he does come back to it later, saying that it's best to avoid non-determinism because a deterministic PDA is faster and easier to simulate. But at the same time, non-deterministic with the example of palindromes shows that it has so much more power, but at the same time he uh, warns against it. So then we get into parsing with pushdown automata. So they mention that the traditional approach is to break it into two parts, lexical and syntactic analysis, um, which seemed to me like lexical is like, I mean, the way I interpreted it as, you know, actually writing your code to do its job, whereas syntactic is testing that code to make sure it's a valid program and, um, you know, using the grammar that we wrote um, to make sure it's being parsed correctly. Yeah, I think another part of the syntactic analysis would be allowing the... Um, Shoot, I'm forgetting the name of that uh, tree structure um, that we uh, built up before. Um, like without understanding that you know these this string of of um, characters together, this token is a you know it's a while, it's a keyword, or this might be a function name, or that sort of thing. Without that part of the syntactic analysis, you can't build up that um, that tree. Which I guess in this con in this scenario, they're calling the CFG, the context-free grammar. Is that true? Uh, I, I, felt- I I could be wrong. Yeah, I I I could be wrong too. I felt like the um, the context-free grammar is the um, is a description. But a context-free grammar is not the same thing that's going to be able to uh, be passed into an interpre- interpreter or a compiler and generate okay. the executable. 
Okay, yes, I think you're right. But doing syntactic analysis kind of is the bridge between last chapter and this chapter, where you get your tokens with regular expressions and then you uh, anal lexically analyze them using a pushdown automata. Yeah, I definitely like that aspect. It's nice to see how the two work together. I found it interesting how at the end he's uh, basically saying, well, in practical terms, this made you the job, but actually we'll want to use look ahead and uh, probably just want to write something completely different. Even more power. <laughs> how much power? More. <laughs> Never enough. This is a still a long way from being properly useful and i like that he touches on like none of them can output anything they can just say yes or no right yeah i definitely think the first time we'll see the ability to write is next chapter but to a certain degree i mean they can output to the stack you know like ultimately you know that is a form of writing you just need a way to access the stack outside of the pushdown automata. Yeah, that's true. If you if you ran the for instance like the parentheses matcher against balanced parentheses like if you could see if the stack was empty you'd know that they were balanced. Yeah. I mean ultimately any memory storage device can be used as an output device so long as something else can read it, right? I mean I guess with the context of the fact that we're in the next chapter, we're essentially writing to disk and that is considered output. Um, you know, it's not, it doesn't feel too different to consider the stack itself as a possible output. It seems like it's a, you know, a, a regular expression match, but uh, I mean, you're going to get a Boolean out of it, not anything. Um, you won't return a string or anything else that you would, could deem useful, I guess, than a true or false. Cool. Any closing thoughts? More power. <laughs> more power. <laughs> All right. Uh, you can find more episodes on csbookclub.com uh, slash understanding computation. And talk to you next time. Say bye. See you guys. Bye. See you next time. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, I think you should keep in the whispering. Say bye. Yes, <laughs> absolutely, please. <laughs>